صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. This morning, we're going to bring you the audio from this year's Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize winner, the Honourable Melissa Park, MP. Sit back and enjoy her acceptance speech. Shukran, Stuart. I really don't know what to say after that. It was totally beautiful. Thank you so much for those very beautiful words, very kind words. Um, Salam alaikum. Good evening. Thank you all for coming. I see many old friends in the room and it gladdens my heart. I want to thank the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network and Australians for Palestine and in particular, Nasser Mashni, Sonia Karkar, and Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees for the invitation and for the award. I also acknowledge the federal parliamentarians, Maria Van Bakkenu, uh, longtime chair of the Parliamentary Friends of Palestine, <coughs> Julian Hill, Senator Jess Walsh, state parliamentarians, Shokat Mosselman, and Bronwyn Halfpenny and uh, former MPs, Alan Griffin, Lee Rhiannon, and Jean McLean. And I also want to acknowledge our other VIPs, His Beatitude, Bishop George Browning, um, President of APAN, Dr. Bassam Dali, who's come such a long way, Dr. Peter Slezak, Reverend Tim Costello, and Adele Salman, the President of the Islamic Council of Victoria. And this morning I spoke on the phone to Brian Dorr, who has previously emceed this event. He sends his love and greetings to you all uh, from Tangiers in Morocco, where he's now spending some time. I acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the uh, Kulin Nation and we pay our very deep respects to their elders, past and present, and to other First Nations people who may be here tonight. We acknowledge their gentle stewardship of this land for tens of thousands of years and as was said by former Young Australian of the Year, former Afghan refugee Akram Azimi, we make this acknowledgement not out of a sense of protocol but out of recognition that the dreaming has not ended and we're all a part of it. Indigenous peoples of the world have always understood the connection between all things, people, animals and all of nature, and that there is a natural balance that must be respected. I'm convinced that most of the problems facing the world today, pandemics, climate change, mass extinctions, nuclear weapons, 
mental health crises, even war, stem from humanity's disconnection, our separation from nature and from each other, from forgetting that we on this planet are all ultimately connected. And our way back rests in rediscovering that truth. We can learn much from the ancient wisdom and ways of the Aboriginal people who've demonstrated a willingness to forgive and to share. And that sharing extends to a kinship with other peoples of the world who've suffered loss of their lands, oppression, discrimination and stigmatisation, including the Palestinian people. I'd like to especially pay tribute tonight to Dr Gary Foley, last year's winner of the Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize, which was held online for his long battle for recognition of Indigenous rights in this country and for his unstinting support and solidarity with the Palestinian cause. Sadly, Uncle Gary couldn't be here tonight, but we send him love and thanks for his ongoing work. I'd also like to acknowledge the other past winners of this prize. Of course, Professor Stuart Rees, who just spoke so eloquently, um, the inaugural recipient of this award, who's not only a tireless advocate for human rights himself, especially of the Palestinians, but he's also a poet. And I had the pleasure of launching his latest of 24 books called Cruelty or Humanity in Fremantle in September. It contains a unique blend of human rights issues and poetry from around the world, and I urge everyone to get a copy. I acknowledge too the second worthy recipient of the Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize, Dr. Anthony Lowenstein. I was fortunate to be here to see him receive it in 2019. Um, and it's wonderful to see his father, Geoffrey, here tonight. Thank you for coming. Um, Anthony has shown enormous courage in authoring many books on controversial or seldom examined topics, including My Israel Question, the best-selling book on the Israel-Palestine conflict and the tactics of the Zionist lobby. When the book was shortlisted in the 2007 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, Anthony wrote, I look forward to the accusations of anti-Semitism by the usual suspects. He has another book coming out this year, or next year, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. What each of these remarkable people have in common is a commitment to truth-telling. Truth-telling about Palestine in Australia is especially challenging. I'm sure everyone in this room is very well aware of that. But never has it been more important to show solidarity with the people whose right to their own state as established in international law is being rendered increasingly impossible to achieve and whose deteriorating plight has been largely ignored by the international community in what may be seen as appalling double standards. Right now, the global community is rightly condemning violations of international law in Ukraine, including Russia's occupation and annexation of Ukrainian territory, while at the same time failing to acknowledge the very same violations committed by Israel. Ukrainians resisting Russian aggression are lauded as freedom fighters while Palestinians resisting Israeli aggression are vilified as terrorists. A number of countries have imposed sanctions and boycotts on Russia, while at the same time condemning, and in some cases criminalising, boycotts and sanctions against Israel. Western capitals are rushing to supply additional weaponry to Ukraine, while as observed by journalist Jonathan Cook. By contrast, 
No one in the West is suggesting that the Palestinians should be armed to help them fight off decades of Israeli occupation and siege. Quite the reverse. It is invariably Western weapons that rain down on Gaza, supplied to the belligerent Israeli occupier by the very parties now condemning Russia. As my former colleague, Professor of International Law, Dr Ardi Imsais has noted, if international law is to mean anything in our fragile and divided world, it is imperative for us to apply it universally, not only when it suits us politically to do so. With Herculean hypocrisy, Israel has joined in the condemnation of Russia, announcing last month that Israel supports the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine and will not recognise the annexation of the four provinces by Russia. Following this announcement, Israeli journalist Gidon Levy wrote in Haaretz, where to begin? With an occupying state preaching to a different occupying state? With an annexing state announcing that it won't recognise a different annexation? The election this week of an even more right-wing government in Israel follows an election campaign in which the major parties competed to show who could be tougher on the Palestinians, as if the current occupation was not bad enough. Here in the West, there seems to be a collective willful blindness to the findings from the world's preeminent human rights organisations, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, as well as Israeli and Palestinian human rights NGOs and the former UN Special Rapporteur on Palestine, Michael Link, in March this year, and the new Special Rapporteur on Palestine just recently, that, Palestine, that Israel is practising apartheid, as that term is defined in international law. It is not a lack of knowledge that can account for the failure of the international community to respond to these clear findings of apartheid. There's probably no conflict situation in the world that has been more written about. The issue is a lack of will to act. Former Guardian journalist and current editor-in-chief of Middle East Eye, David Hurst, has written, there can be no clearer demonstration of the hollowness of Western values than in their persistent, cynical and criminally responsible failure to bring Israel to book for its actions. What I want to talk to you about tonight is why. As many of you know, I worked in Gaza for two and a half years with UNRWA, the UN agency responsible for the Palestinian refugees. I arrived in early 2002 during the Second Intifada. Just a few days after my arrival, it was early evening, I was moving into my rented apartment overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. Just down the road from a Palestinian refugee camp on, on one side and Yasser Arafat's presidential compound on the other. I hadn't yet unpacked my bags when the bombing started. From the large windows overlooking the sea, I could see and hear Israeli battleships and Apache helicopters just offshore, and they were firing past my building into Arafat's compound. During one break in the bombing, I went to the windows to open them slightly, as we'd been advised to do in our security briefings, because it reduces the chance of the glass shattering. I saw a man and a small boy outside on the beach. They were crouching behind a wall. I heard another bomb coming and dove behind the couch. When I looked out of the window again through the smoke, I couldn't see the man and boy anymore. 36 bombs were dropped on Gaza City that night. Next morning, I looked out of the window at the wreckage around the building 
and I saw the small boy from the night before on the beach. He was flying a kite. And I wonder what the cumulative impact of thousands of bombs over the 20 years since then would have had on him and the other children in Gaza. My role at UNRWA was to negotiate access for UN staff and humanitarian supplies through checkpoints and borders, to write reports to the UN General Assembly and Security Council, among other things. I witnessed the bombing campaigns, the targeted assassinations and associated civilian death toll, the killing and maiming of Palestinian refugee children attending UN schools. I wrote reports concerning the killing of UN staff. Soon after I arrived in Palestine, an UNRWA medical officer, Kamal Hamdan, was shot dead in the back of a UN ambulance. The ambulance, which was transporting a critically wounded refugee, had been given clearance by the Israel Defence Forces to proceed into the Tulkarim refugee camp when it was fired upon. Israel initially falsely claimed there'd been a Palestinian militant hiding in the ambulance. Later that year, British UN staff member Ian Hook who, like me, had worked in Kosovo before coming to Palestine, was standing in a UN compound in Janine, negotiating with the IDF on his mobile phone regarding safe passage for his staff, when he was shot in the back by an Israeli sniper, situated in a high building overlooking the UN compound. The UN ambulance was then prevented by the IDF from entering the compound to collect Ian requiring UN staff to make a hole in the fence to take him out. Ian died in the ambulance on the way to hospital. Israel initially claimed Ian had been holding a gun, then that there had been firing from the UN compound. Both claims were untrue. Apart from a statement from the UN Secretary General expressing concern and requesting an investigation, nothing ever happened in response to these war crimes, even from the British government whose citizen had been murdered. A UN Security Council resolution condemning Israel for the killing was vetoed by the United States. In the end, 65 UN staff in Israel and the occupied territory, including me and my boss, who was then the head of the International Legal Division of UNRWA, issued an open letter referring to a pattern of utter contempt on the part of the Israeli army and calling for an independent investigation and accountability for Israel an unprecedented action from UN officials who take their impartial status seriously. I mention Ian's case because it makes Israel's audacity, its complete impunity, even when it has wrongfully caused the death of an international humanitarian worker, more obvious. What never made the international news, though, were the daily killings of Palestinian civilians, including sheep herders and fishermen, who'd simply been going about their work the day-by-day -day bulldozing of ancient olive groves, orange orchards and greenhouses, the administrative detention without charge, trial or any due process of tens, sometimes hundreds of people, including children, for weeks, months and even years in an unfair and untransparent military court system that applies only to Palestinians. I saw the humiliations and interminable waiting at checkpoints, including the harassment of ambulances and pregnant women on their way to hospital, sometimes leading to the death of women and babies, and the delaying for days of farmers on their way to market until their fresh produce had gone bad. There was the gratuitous settler violence that passed uncriticised and unpunished, the relentless growth of illegal West Bank settlements and their buffer zones and settler-only roads, the demolition of Palestinian homes, 
the diversion of West Bank water for settlement lawns and swimming pools, while only a comparative trickle was allowed to impoverished Palestinian communities. There was the curiously circuitous route of the war, which appeared designed to include as much Palestinian land with as few Palestinian people as possible. The same wall that was declared by the International Court of Justice in 2004 to be illegal. And an opaque system of checkpoints, closures, curfews and permits that severely restricted freedom of movement, access to services and the capacity of Christians and Muslims to access holy places. Israeli journalist Amiria Haas has called it the shredding of Palestinian space. Security for both Israelis and Palestinians is a legitimate issue but it should be understood that there is no parity of power in this equation. In 1948, Israel unilaterally declared itself a state in the land of Palestine and achieved the expulsion of 700,000 Palestinians from their homes through violence. Many of those Palestinians and their descendants continue to live as refugees in appalling conditions while they wait to return home. Israel is one of the strongest military powers in the world the only nuclear power in the Middle East, under international law and occupation should be temporary. Israel has occupied Palestine for 55 years. It has imposed a brutal blockade on Gaza for the last 15 years, a form of collective punishment that is also illegal under international law, leaving 80% of the population dependent on humanitarian aid to survive. Israel's armed forces have targeted and killed unarmed civilians, including medical personnel and journalists, with complete impunity for these war crimes and its incessant drones never give the people a moment of peace. Israel has just in the last few weeks introduced a new law to severely restrict the ability of foreigners, including those of Palestinian origin living abroad, to enter the West Bank for the purposes of business, education, humanitarian work and even to visit family. The objective is of course to isolate Palestinian society in the West Bank from the outside world, as it's already done to Gaza. Israel has also raided and forced the closure of Palestinian civil society NGOs, calling them terrorist groups. I'm sure everyone is aware of what Human Rights Watch has called a profound miscarriage of justice in the case of the former head of World Vision's Gaza office, Mohammed El Halabi, who was arrested in 2016 and after a trial lasting a record six years, was convicted by an Israeli court based largely on secret evidence of diverting $50 million of World Vision money to Hamas. And he was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment. As Anthony Lowenstein reported, an international audit by Deloitte and by US law firm DLA Piper and an investigation by the Australian government found no evidence of wrongdoing. Indeed, World Vision made it clear that its entire Gaza budget for 10 years was $22.5 million, making a mockery of the claim that El Halabi stole $50 million. His case is just one example of the injustice occurring on a large scale in Palestine. I saw firsthand how the Israeli state had systematically devised literally thousands of ways to make life difficult for the Palestinians and frankly, it is impossible for anyone who goes to Palestine with an open mind to come away unaffected by a sense of deep injustice. I challenge anyone to visit Hebron, for example, and not be profoundly moved by the desolation of that proud ancient city, its empty markets and tormented Palestinian inhabitants, 
who are forced to hide their children in their homes and shelter them from the rocks thrown by armed settlers who patrol the old city, taunting its people and inflicting random violence while basking in the protection of the IDF. This is not to suggest that the Palestinians are always blameless. They are not. As is clear from rocket attacks on Israel from Gaza, suicide bombings, knife attacks and other occurrences that make the news in the Western media. Violence against civilians cannot be justified. But rather than being random acts of violence committed because of innate cruelty or hatred of Jews, as such events are frequently portrayed by Israeli spokespeople, there is a context in which these events occur that rarely gets spoken about. That is Palestinian dispossession and more than half a century of military occupation that has left many young Palestinians, perhaps those including those fighting in Nablus right now, feeling as though there is nothing to live and hope for. It is this context of relentless occupation that is left out of the stories in Western media. That is why during my time in the Australian Parliament, I felt a particular moral obligation to speak about Palestine because there were so few Australian MPs who had first-hand knowledge of the true situation and none to my knowledge who'd actually lived there in Palestine. It was perhaps a measure of my naivety, but I was shocked when I stood up to talk about the truth of the situation as I'd seen it for myself, that I was then attacked uh, by some MPs and in the media. And it's not really surprising when you see the results of research showing that Australian MPs visit Israel on more official trips than to any other country, including the US and China. When you look at the unofficial visits by Australian MPs to Israel, the numbers are much higher again. New MPs, as well as key political party members and journalists, are targeted by the pro-Israel lobby to receive all expenses paid trips to Israel. Although I should note that I never received such an invitation. They've clearly done their research. <laughs> as some of you know, I was forced to withdraw as a candidate in the 2019 federal election after being attacked in and by the Australian media about a speech I'd made before the campaign in which I spoke about the injustices committed by Israelis against Palestinians during the time I worked in Palestine. It was deeply disturbing to have my reputation established through more than 25 years of public and community service traduced with such vitriol and malice. Some of you will be aware that I decided to take legal action against some in the media and the community for their defamatory comments to challenge the unfounded allegations of anti-Semitism so that others would not be afraid to speak their minds in the future. In a free country like Australia, it is important that we retain the freedom to criticise any country without being personally vilified. With the assistance of Paul Hayward, Smith QC, Bassam Dali and many others, including other, others here in this room, I took legal action against, among others, the West Australian and Herald Sun newspapers and the executive director of the Australia-Israel Jewish Affairs Council. We ended up with apologies and retractions, which shows that standing up for truth is important and does have an impact. And uh, Bassam sent me a copy of an article uh, earlier this year from the Australian Jewish News, in which a director of the Australian Jewish Association is quoted as saying, I won't repeat former Labor MP Melissa Park's Israel-related comments, since others have been sued. <laughs> Unfortunately, despite the manifest wrongs that have been perpetrated against them, the Palestinian perspective is rarely seen or heard, except in human rights reports, 
To the world, and the West in particular, they are often portrayed as terrorists or rendered faceless, voiceless and other. This is chiefly due to two factors. Firstly, Israel has the virtually unconditional support of a global power, the United States, which as a member of the Permanent Five has used its veto over many decades to stop UN Security Council resolutions condemning Israel's actions. The US also provides Israel with billions of dollars in military aid every year, which it uses to crush the Palestinians. Prominent academic and editor of Jewish Currents, Peter Beinart, has called upon the American Jewish community to recognise that Palestinian equality and Jewish safety are ultimately intertwined. He urges them to untether themselves from the anti-Palestinian racism that pervades both American politics and the organised American Jewish life, to challenge the dehumanising assumption that Palestinians are motivated not by a desire for freedom, but by an innate hatred of Jews. And he asks them to realise that one can oppose illiberal Palestinian parties like Hamas and Islamic Jihad without believing that their existence strips Palestinians of their right to individual and national freedom. If Jews don't forfeit their right to political equality because they elect religious supremacists, neither do Palestinians. Second way the Palestinians are rendered voiceless is via Israel's active Zionist lobby that engages, engages in misinformation and propaganda in the mainstream media and in political circles regarding Palestinians and that smears those who criticise Israel's treatment of the Palestinians as anti-Semitic. In the words of Professor Noam Chomsky, the main task of Israeli propaganda is to make it clear to the world there's no difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. By anti-Zionism is meant criticisms of the current policies of the State of Israel. The lobby's aim is to divert the focus from Israel's illegal and immoral actions by attempting to collectively tarnish the character of Palestinian people and those who defend them. It is curious indeed that so many people, including Jewish people, who've devoted their lives to fighting racism and defending human rights are anti-Semitic, according to the lobby. Unfortunately, the weaponisation of anti-Semitism to protect Israel from criticism has been taken to new lengths as the pro-Israel lobby urges governments, parliaments and universities around the world to adopt the working definition of anti-Semitism that has been developed by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IHRA. Jewish academic, Peter Slezak, explains that while the definition itself is unobjectionable, that anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews, what is deeply problematic are the 11 examples used to illustrate the working definition of anti-Semitism, of which six concern criticism of Israel. He notes the concern expressed by the author of the IHRA definition, Kenneth Stern, about the McCarthy-like use of the definition to suppress political speech. Renowned barrister Geoffrey Robertson QC has also concluded that the IHRA definition is liable to chill legitimate criticism of human rights abuses against Palestinians by defaming critics of Israel as anti-Semitic. The British Labour Party adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism in 2018 and has been using it to threaten or expel Labour Party members, including some 42 Jewish Labour Party members who've criticised Israel. 
it is important that the true implications of adopting this definition are understood before anyone would contemplate implementing it here in Australia. And we must remain vigilant against such encroachments on freedom of speech here and elsewhere. Given the realities on the ground in Palestine, it is with some remarkable audacity that Zionists continue to present Israel to themselves and the world as the eternal victim. In my view, Israel's possession of disproportionate force will never constitute true power for as long as it continues to behave as the victim. Because victimhood is based in fear. Human beings all have in common a fundamental yearning for freedom and happiness. The question I have for Israelis is, can you truly achieve freedom and happiness if it is dependent on the oppression and misery of others? In denying Palestinian self-determination, Israelis ultimately deny their own freedom and happiness. As we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement and from the Uluru Statement from the Heart, true power comes not from fear, but from love, from standing in truth, from exercising self-determination, and the kind of resistance to wrongful actions, policies and laws demonstrated so courageously by Gazans in the Great March of Return, by the conscientious objectors in the Israeli military, by the brave global citizens participating in the Gaza flotilla, as well as by international Israeli and Palestinian journalists, academics and intellectuals fiercely reporting the truth whatever the cost to themselves. As Indian author and public intellectual Arundhati Roy wrote last month in support of those oppressed, in every line I write, every word I speak, what I'm really saying is we are not zero. You haven't defeated us. We see true power in the actions of individuals like John Salisbury and Marcelo Swierski walking long distances to Canberra in solidarity with Palestine. Yeah. We, see, we see true power in the divestment decisions made by universities and by companies like Ben and Jerry's, in the boycotts of Israel by artists and arts festivals. We see true power in the work of organisations like Global Garden for Peace and the Palestinian Animal League, or PALS, which is working with Palestinian youth in the West Bank to encourage kindness, justice and compassion for all. We see true power in the determination to practice Palestinian culture. As I've done in the past, I'd like to read one of Samar Sabahi's poems as quoted in Professor Reese's book, Cruelty or Humanity. We will cultivate hope in the seeds we plant in place of uprooted trees, in the prose and the verses of our poetry, in homes we build from the rubble after demolition, in songs of love and passion, in strokes of oil on canvas and in prayers in mosques and churches, and there, within the suffocating spaces between their towers, walls and checkpoints, we will teach our children how to dance to the rhythms of life. We can cultivate hope from the fact that there is now an investigation underway by the International Criminal Court regarding crimes committed in Palestine arising from the 2014 military offensive on Gaza and the Great March of Return, as well as settlement building and the ongoing blockade on Gaza. It is to be hoped the ICC will also investigate the forcible transfer and expulsion of Palestinians from East Jerusalem and the cases submitted by the International Federation of Journalists regarding Israel's bombing of the media towers in Gaza and its killing of journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. As her family members have said, there must be consequences when a military kills civilians, 
If not, it affords Israel's military and any other military the impunity to do this again. We can take heart from the first report of the new UN Special Rapporteur on Palestine, Francesca Albanese, to the UN General Assembly just two months ago, in which she called for a paradigm shift in the approach of the international community, starting with the cardinal norm of the Palestinian people's right to self-determination and the end of settler colonialism, illegal occupation and apartheid practices, not simply by negotiation, given the imbalance of power, but rather by positive international action. One of the report's recommendations is the deployment of an international protective presence to constrain the violence routinely used in the occupied territory and protect the Palestinian population. In addition, two weeks ago in its first report to the UN General Assembly, the UN Commission of Inquiry on Palestine found that the Israeli occupation is unlawful under international law due to its permanence and the Israeli government's de facto annexation policies. Predictably, pro-Israel groups have branded the UN report a masterpiece of modern anti-Semitism. And just last week, there was a joint letter by five former European foreign ministers in Le Monde saying, we see no alternative but to acknowledge that Israel's policies and practices against the Palestinians amount to the crime of apartheid. The crimes of the Israeli state are bursting through the dam and cannot be covered up any longer. Countries like Australia are being called upon to stand up for the international rule of law as strongly on Palestine as they have for Ukraine. We don't need 100% of the people to agree in order to create significant positive change. We just need enough to create a tipping point where change becomes inevitable. Reforms like votes for women and the end of South African apartheid may seem obvious now, but they weren't for a long time. The eventual victory was the result of the action and struggle of many people campaigning over time in the knowledge that justice and right were on their side. As the American activist for civil and children's rights, Marion Wright Edelman said, it is so important not to become apathetic or cynical by telling ourselves that nothing works or makes a difference. Every day, light your small candle. So every voice counts. We all, each of us in our own way, can light our small candle speak the truth and stand in our power. This is a strengths-based approach founded on resistance, love, hope and truth-telling. As we see change happening in Australia for Aboriginal people, witness the national outpouring of feeling for Cassius Turvey, um, the Aboriginal boy taken too young by violence. I feel sure that the growing impetus and momentum for equality, self-determination and justice for the Palestinians will reach a tipping point that will upend the illegal occupation and apartheid. As the great Palestinian philosopher Edward Said observed, in the end it is finally the humblest and the most basic instrument that will bring peace. And certainly that instrument is not a fighter plane or a rifle butt. This instrument is self-conscious rational struggle conducted in the interests of human community. Thank you. That was the wonderful Melissa Park, this year's Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize winner. Make sure you get along next year. The Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize is getting bigger and better every single year. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.